everybody. I'm glad you're here. You can open up the Bible with me. Um, we are uh, normally plugging through a, a series because we go through books of the Bible here. We do believe the Bible is God's Word and that that is where power is found for change in our own lives and how we uh, can see Jesus clearer. Uh, but we are going to put a two-week break on our series in the book of Luke, which is what we've been going through, in order to uh, hone in on this uh, message we love in and called the gospel. That's what we will look at today, and also how it affects uh, how we live. That will be next week. So uh, today we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Towards the back, it's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll read verses 1 through 11. And then, if you're really ambitious, although these verses will be on the screen later, you can also go to Isaiah 53. We will be there um, in the middle of the sermon as well. So you feel free to turn there also. But... Right now, I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, and then I'll pray, and then we'll just seek to ask God to change us, not just our thinking, but our hearts. God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reads this way. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that means good news, that I preach to you. I is Paul, follower of Jesus, which you received, the used there, the believers in Corinth, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and that's this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That is, dead. They died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Let's pray. Father, I ask. I ask that you would take this, your word, this good news. And to those who are hearing it for the first time. I ask that they would love what they hear. And that they would embrace you. For those who are followers of you, the living God, who have placed their trust in Jesus, I ask, O oh God, that they would see this good message 
this good news of Jesus as not something that applied at one point, but something that is power for them today and forever. So, Father, display your greatness. Be the one that's famous in this room right now. Get the glory for yourself that you deserve. May I decrease, may you increase, may people be impressed by you and you alone. Father, thank you for being one filled with steadfast love. And it's to you we come now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to hear um, a little testimony from someone in our church, a resident theologian. What that means is it's, it's a scholar that is among us, and uh, it happens to be my uh, six-year-old. Uh, he, his name is Justice, and this is him, a sweet little boy. And at night, when I put him to bed, there are times when... Uh, just so much kind of cuteness comes out of his mouth that I'll just actually take my phone and hit record so that I can capture these moments. And so last night was uh, one of those times. And as I was sitting there, I, he started talking about God. And so I was like, hey, let's record it. So I want you to hear from our resident theologian, Justice Cordell. Mm -hmm. This is his... 12 disciples, and this is him. Okay. This one's him. He goes up. What? What? Why is it really important that Jesus rose from the dead? Because he died on a cross from our sins. And then he rose, and then he stayed on earth for a little bit, mm -hmm. and then he went to heaven. He just, guess what he said? He, the clouds were up. And mm -hmm. it was starting, that's what he did. This is his 12 disciples, and mm -hmm. this is him. Okay. This one's him. He goes up. And he ascended to heaven? Uh-huh. Wow, that's amazing. So he died on the cross for our sins. Uh-huh. And what, what, like, why is it important that he rose from the dead? What if he would have just stayed dead? What if he stayed on the dead? You know why? why? He did it. Because God is powerful. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he's powerful enough to change you, isn't he? Mm hmm He's sure powerful enough to change me, too. I'm not powerful enough to change, change you. No. God is. That's right. Amen and amen. Sermon's done. <laughs> the good news is genuinely that that you missed this one part where it was a little fuzzy. He, he was trying to show with his hands. He says, okay, now get this. The disciples, they were here, and Jesus was right here, and he went like this, whoop, like that. <laughs> and that was the part you missed. And so I said, so he ascended, and I said, yeah, okay. So um, the point of that is that why did Jesus have to die, and why did he have to rise from the dead? And my little boy said, because it shows that he is powerful. And this is what we want to look at today. 
is also what my son said at the end is counterintuitive to almost the entire world. And that is, I am not powerful enough to change myself. I myself am not powerful enough to get rid of my sin and my shame and my guilt. I need someone else to do that for me. That is the crux of the good news. Is that what you could not do for yourself, Jesus did. He died the death that you deserved. He was raised from the dead three days later to show that he is more powerful, yes, than you are, but more powerful than the sin that grips you. More powerful than even death itself. And so, Jesus did die. Jesus did rise from the dead, and it demonstrates his great power. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, later on in the chapter, verses 14 and 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. It means that his resurrection is a big deal. It is the biggest deal because anyone who claims to be a Christian, everything hangs on not that a Savior just died, but that he rose from the dead. And all other religions crumble when they have only a dead Jesus because we're the only one that says Jesus rose from the grave and that's where the power lies to get us out of our sin. And so what we want to look at today What we want to look at today is Jesus' power displayed in the cross, but also Jesus' power continuing to the present. Now, my main aim is not to prove kind of the historical reliability of the resurrection, to give you a ton of evidences to say Jesus did rise from the dead. Paul has done that for us right here in the text, did he not? He said, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for Peter. Peter was kind of the general spokesman for uh, the early church. And Peter was the first one with John to see the empty tomb. He says he not only appeared to him, but he also appeared to over 500 witnesses. Now, you never want to write something that can be proven false by people who are still alive. You want to wait till they die and then write your tale. Instead, no. He wrote a true story where the witnesses could call it false if they wanted to, but the witnesses did not. They verified it, and many of them even gave their lives for it. Later on, it says that he appeared to James. James was the pastor over the church at Jerusalem, and what was remarkable in Jerusalem was that the entire Jewish believing population, those who trusted in Jesus, all of a sudden overnight shifted from worshiping on a Saturday to worshiping on a Sunday. Why would they do that? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. He's alive. This is a true thing. This happened. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. But right now what we want to talk about is not the historical reliability, although it is completely true. What we want to talk about is the power of the resurrection. The power to change you in a moment and the power to secure for you an eternal future, but also not only power displayed, but power today. Power to change you in your life right where you are. Power found in Jesus himself as he gives us who trust in him his Holy Spirit to change us moment 
by moment. I want you to look in chapter 15. What we do is we just not only read the passage, but then I want you to understand what we've read. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, it says this. Now I, Paul, remind you, brothers. So he's addressing a bunch of people who have said, I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins because I cannot save myself. Men and women alike in the church, and he's saying, I have shared some good news with you. You see where I get that? Of the gospel I preached to you. That's the good news I preached to you, which you received. So this good news was preached, and it hit their heart, and they received it. And he says, it's that good news in which you now stand and are being saved. Yesterday, my daughter asked if she could go to the pool. Now, on a mid-80-degree day, that seems like a reasonable request. The problem is, is that she's been asking it since February. It's getting a little old. But we didn't have really access to a pool, so we got our dollar store squirt guns. You know, those cylinders about like this where you pull it out, and then all of a sudden, you know, they shoot pretty good now. And so we went at it, and there was a bunch of water guns in our front yard, and we were just squirting each other. Now, it was a lot of fun. However, it didn't fully satisfy the pool itch. One reason I knew this is because it was now bedtime, and I was telling uh, my boy to go to bed, or to go up and to get ready to take a bath, and I would turn on the water. Now, I'm not talking about my two oldest. I'm not talking about my 15 and 13-year-old. This is my 6-year-old. And so Justice runs upstairs, and as I walk into the bathroom to turn on the water and get it ready, he is standing there completely naked with goggles in hand. The pool didn't happen. It's now going to happen. Puts the goggles on, jumps in the tub, and he's going under. You know, he's swimming in the whole nine yards. Now, why would he do that? Because he wants the experience of not just a douse here and there. He wants to have his entire self covered in this water. That's what's one thing that's really good about pool on a hot day. It's just the refreshment, the, just the whole body covered with this water. And this is what Paul is saying about the gospel. He's saying, yes, it is good news that when proclaimed, if you believe it, it can change you in a moment. And in that moment, when you trust in him, it can guarantee your future forever. Eternal life with him by simply confessing your sins and trusting in Christ. But he's saying it's not just the squirt gun that secures the beginning and the end. It is something that completely covers the one who trusts in Jesus. It changes everything about their surroundings, everything about how they hear, see, touch, taste, and smell. It changes everything about them spiritually. And so he says it's the gospel in which they now stand. They stand in this good news, and look at this phrase, by which you are being saved. This good news comes with power that when you trust in Jesus, He gives you His Holy Spirit, and you are not left alone. You have the power to fight against your lustful temptations, your desires not to love. You have power inside of you. This week for me, when I was battling with anxiety, 
struggling to find confidence, the Spirit of God began to stir in my heart and says, you don't have to live like this. There's one who has secured your future. There's one who will be near to you. You will never be left alone. And it was the power of the gospel changing me this week. When I had a lust for control and I wanted things to go my way, my way, or heck, lust for anything else, there was this stir in the heart where God says, I've got you. My plans will be accomplished. You can trust me. And I am more superior to than anything you could set your eyes upon. I'm better and I love you. The gospel is not only something that changes you in a moment, it is something that you stand in, something that changes you in power day after day after day. It is good news. And it is good news that that God is going to keep you until the end. Because when he talks about speaking this good news, look at what he says in verse 1. Let me jump back up there. He says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, I'm a sports guy. I like sports. So when I hear receiving, I think wide receiver. So what comes to my mind, maybe Kelvin Benjamin or one of our Panthers guys. And I think the image applies. So what happens? Quarterback, right, throws the ball. When the ball is in the air, the receiver has this job. He goes up and he grabs the ball. Now that he has the ball, what is next? He wants to secure the ball and now as the receiver runs he's going to secure this ball but what's going to be coming at him people are going to be coming from all over the place and they have one goal to knock the ball out to attack you from this side to try to trip you up and make you fall and he is fighting stiff arming pushing plugging trying to get to the end and when he gets to the end zone he celebrates he's saying here paul is saying i was the quarterback now he wasn't thinking football, but follow the analogy. I was the quarterback. I threw the good news to you, and you grabbed it. You grabbed hold of it, and you secured it. And you started running. And there are people that are trying to attack you, trying to teach you false things. He's saying, don't hold the ball out here. If you hold it out here, what happens? It gets knocked right out. Secure it. Cling to the cross. Cling to Christ. Don't let it be pulled away. And as you run across that goal line, what's going to happen, contrary to the reason many others celebrate, is that there will be a celebration, all right, but it'll be a celebration that someone else was carrying you the entire time. Someone was fighting for you the whole way, stronger than any stiff arm you could have given. It's what verse 10 says in our passage that I read for you already. This is how Paul will talk and talks now how he will talk at the end. It says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace, that is his help toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I pushed off the enemies. I sprinted hard. I stiff-armed. I worked harder than any of them. But who gets the credit? Though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. That's how someone who is standing in the gospel talks. God gets all the glory. He's the famous one. He gets all the praise. 
Paul is passionate that this church doesn't lose sight of not only the power displayed, it was displayed in the cross, but also the power for today to live in the power that God secures for us. Now, so the question is, will you today receive that good news? Will you receive this as good news? Now, Paul is going to tell us what the good news is in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He had to receive it too. The only way you experience the changing work of Jesus Christ is that you turn from your sin You confess your inability to save yourself by your works and you cling to him. You embrace him with your heart, asking him to save you. Paul says, what I also received, I now give to you. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. This is the good news. And it is, maybe we could call it, power displayed. On the cross, his power was displayed. And three days later, he rose from the dead. The power was displayed. And Paul begins in verse 3 with this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' death is a big deal. To Christians, Jesus' death is a big deal. It's everything. I know it seems a little morbid, it seems a little weird, it's everything. Paul talked like this. He said, I will boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was a tent maker. He knew stuff. He knew how to make a living with his hands. He was also what was called a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most religious. He could lean on his competency all day long, and he says, not going to do it. What I'm going to lean on, I'm going to lean solely on one thing, and it is the Savior who died for me on the cross. It is the epicenter of the Christian faith the epicenter of my life. I use that word intentionally. What's an epicenter? It's the center point of an earthquake. And it means that as the ground is shaking, everything else reverberates out from that center. And genuinely, Jesus is the epicenter of the world. And everything reverberates out from his death on the cross. And now you are hearing a message that is forcing choices upon you. You must choose to not just accept his death as a mental concept, but to, yes, believe that he died, believe that he rose again, and believe that that affects how you should live your life. His death is a big deal, and he says that we can see and understand his death according to the what? Yep, just making sure you're awake, so I'll say it again. We can find out about his death according to the... There we go. I got about half of you. That'll work. Okay. So, the Old Testament is the scriptures. The Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, written hundreds, some even thousands of years before Jesus died. Make sure you register that. It's a prophecy, it's written before it happened. 
Even if it was written a few days before it happened, it would be astounding. This is written hundreds, in some places thousands of years before Jesus ever died. And Jesus' death is good news. And I know that's weird. How can death of someone be good? We don't like to think on death. We don't like to talk about death. But I'm telling you, this death is good news. And here's why. Number one, Jesus' death is, is an example of sacrifice and perfect goodness. Jesus' death is an example of sacrifice and perfect goodness. He taught us what it is to be sacrificial. And honestly, unless one is atheist and chooses that um, pattern of belief, which it is a belief, then many will at least agree on this point. Jesus was a good person and he showed us some good things with his life. And the fact that he believed that he was dying for the sake of others, that's a really good example. It's a good example. And he is. He is a good example of sacrifice. And I would argue the perfect example of sacrifice. But he's more than just like the example of sacrifice like we get with Mother Teresa, who is an example of sacrifice for the sake of mercy. And he's more than we get from just an example of sacrifice that we get in Martin Luther King Jr., who was an example of sacrifice for justice. There's something deeper and fuller here in Jesus' example of sacrifice. Because number two, Jesus, in his death on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God that must justly be poured out on sinners. Now that's a mouthful, I get it. And for some of you who came in and you think God is just simply angry, this kind of almost bolsters your arguments. God is angry and he had to kill his son because he's angry. Does he not have control? Well, I think to understand the wrath of God, and I would argue to understand God in his fullness, because never is God holy and just without being fully loved. He doesn't separate them. He is the all of his attributes all at one time. I think in order to understand this, we should start at the beginning. That's a good place to start with the story. It's at the beginning. So why don't we start there? In the beginning of all things, the God of the universe, one God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created by speaking words, not out of need, because God lacks in nothing, but out of the overflow of his love, he created, and the apex of his creation on day seven was humanity. He created man in his own image to image him forth and to love him with all of his heart and to find his greatest joy in living for his creator. And as Adam went around, he was asked to name all the animals and there was not one of them was like him enough. There was not a helper suitable. There was not a genuine friend that he could find. And so God, out of his rib, made woman and now bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, they were relational. They were together. And they had everything that they needed. 
The beginning starts out with God speaks a word and it can be trusted and that his work is very, very good. And so how do we experience God's very goodness? We experience it by living according to his word and enjoying his work. That's how it always has been. That's how it always will be. But Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, said no way, no how. Because God said this, it would not be good for you to eat of this one tree in the garden. Have everything else, but it would not be good for you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they said, I'm not going to trust that. I'm going to trust my own way. He says, God says, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. They didn't trust him at his word. They ate and immediately death began to happen. Now, if you've read the story in the Bible, you actually know that Adam and Eve kept living. So what do I mean by death continued to happen? I was reading a book this week entitled Gospel Fluency by a man named Jeff Vanderstelt, and he talks about the three types of death that happened in this moment, spiritual, relational, and then later on, physical. Let's understand what happened. Immediately, there was spiritual death. We could understand spiritual death by the word shame. It says in the, in the, early, of the early parts of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it says they were naked and not ashamed, perfectly satisfied and happy with one another and with their God, in need of nothing. Then they chose to go their own way, try to rule their own life, rebelled against the creator of the universe, and immediately they realized they were naked and they were ashamed of it. They were embarrassed for the first time. And it says that they hid from God. The God that says, I love you and I will give you everything that you need. The God who says, I have created you and I am the only one in which all of your longings can be satisfied. They said no. And now they've tried to hide from him. They experienced spiritual death and shame began to cover them. And every one of you understand the concept of shame. You have done something that you have thought about and it has been, uh, probably shouldn't have done that. The sense of the heart falling to the ankles, the sense of something wrong has not been done and you have immediately tried to blame somebody else. You've tried to immediately shove it off. I'm not this bad. What are you going to do with your shame? Well, that's what people try to do. This is where relational death comes. Just a few verses later, where spiritual um, death equals shame, relational death equals blame. And they begin to blame one another. Adam begins to blame the woman. The woman begins to blame the serpent, who is the embodiment of Satan. And there is this constant idea of blaming. This is why there's constant hatred. It's because you and I know deep down someone's got to pay for treating us that way. And so we blame. Every one of us. It is hardwired in us. That there must be a payment for sin. But here was the problem. Adam couldn't pay for Eve's. Because he is already a sinner. Eve couldn't pay for Adam's. She was already a sinner. You've got to have somebody innocent of sin. To pay for the sin. So instead they couldn't find anybody. Who would get rid of their sin. Nobody was to be found. And so they were dying from the inside out. 
They were hating on one another, filled with anger. And you get this. You intuitively get this. Everyone knows and feels this. If your car is stolen, you say, that person must pay. If I'm punched in the face, you would say, that can't happen. Justice must be done. If someone near to you is hurt in any way, shape, or form, you viscerally say, somebody's got to pay for that. Everyone's felt it. It is what it means to be made in the image of God because you're right. Someone has to pay. A judge can't be a judge if he doesn't bring natural consequences for the transaction that is wrong, for the transgression. Someone must pay, and God is saying the same thing. And so you know what he did? Those of you who are really tempted to say God is only anger, he killed an animal and covered them with its skin. Why would he do that? Because they're dying. Life is found only in blood. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no giving of life. And so he kills an animal. And at the same time, he takes their skins and wraps them up so that they would no longer feel the shame. He covered their shame. That's God. He is love. And he is passionate about covering shame and relieving you of guilt and having a people who would love him for the rest of their lives. Now, why wouldn't he just get rid of people because they have already chosen their own way and basically open hand slapped the king of the universe in the face? Why wouldn't he just get rid of them? Because he created a people to enjoy him forever. And so he covered them instead of crushing them. That's what he did. However, we all must die. That's why everybody on the planet will die. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. We all must die. But there is one who came and stood in our place. And that one who stood in our place is Jesus. And he took our sins on his back, and the wrath of God that justly should be poured out upon our rebellion, he put it on someone else. And it wasn't his enemy. It was his only son. His only son. Take the relationship you love the most and now kill them for the sake of a bunch of people who just open hand slapped you. It sounds stupid. It's called love. It's beautiful. It is the good news. And that's why we run. Because he says Christ died according to the scriptures. That's why we run to, I want to run to just one passage. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm running to one of them. That's Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53 verse 4. It tells us that it was the wrath of God that was put upon the Son when it says, surely He, who is the He in the sentence? It is Jesus, the Messiah, who died for sinners. It says, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. God is the one 
who killed his only son. We go later on in verse 10 when it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why did he do that? Because in order to be just, sins must be punished. He is not loss of self-control. He is holy and just, and he punishes sin, but in so doing, he punishes his son for our sin. The wages of sin is death, but here's the good news. The gift of God to all of humanity, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Who will pay the price? Jesus Christ paid the price. And this is where the good news tells us a third thing that we see here in Isaiah 53. Not only is he a good example, not only does he take the wrath that, of God that was deserving for our sins, but he stood in our place. Jesus took our place. And I just want to read just a few verses for you to help you understand what it means that he stood in your place. He stood in our place. Let's begin in verse 3. I'm just going to read a few verses and then I'm going to apply it so that you would know what it means that he stood in our place. He took our place. It says in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is when you need to know this good news. He was a man of sorrows so that you would, be in, you would never be alone in your sorrows. He experienced grief so that you would never be alone in your grief. It says he was rejected. He was rejected so that you might be accepted by God as his child, adopted into his family. He was acquainted with grief so that you and I could have hope in ours. He is a savior and a friend who understands our pain. And he was despised so that he could identify with every one of you who have ever been hated or ever been misunderstood. And he can say, I understand your pain and you can trust me in it. The passage goes on in Isaiah 53. It says that he was despised and we esteemed him not. It means that people didn't treat him like he deserved. People were against him. And have you ever been treated poorly? Has someone ever been against you? Well, he was esteemed not so that we could be set free not to have to live for the esteem of others. We don't have to live for people's praise. We have the love of another. And he goes on to say, in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He carried our sorrows so that we would never carry our pain alone. He stood in our place. It says in verse 7, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth so that we could open ours for issues of justice. But when we are wrongly accused, we need not fill our mouths with hatred and bitterness because he is our defender. He opened not his mouth so that we could have the freedom at times not to open ours. And then verse 9, he goes on to say, there was no deceit in his mouth. What's that mean? 
It means he's not a liar. You can trust every word he says. Every one of his words is right and good. And it also means, it also means that he was perfect when you couldn't be. And if you trust in him, him standing in your place, you, he took your sin and you get his goodness, his righteousness, his good life. So that friends, and every one of us has been here, you don't have to carry the burden of feeling like you got to be perfect. That is a burden too great for anybody to bear. Instead, it means that you can embrace your weakness, you can say you have limits, you can declare that you're not going to be able to do everything perfectly, that you're not going to be able to know everything even in your own field. It's okay. Because you're not defined by that. You're defined by a Savior who died in your place. Isaiah 53 comes at us over and over and over and over that He stood in our place. He bore our sins upon His shoulders. He took the curse that we should have taken. And He is alive so that we might be set free. And now on His last breath, He says two things. One, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, so that we might be forgiven and might have the power in Christ Jesus to forgive others. And then he says, it is finished. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The wrath of God was taken. The debt was paid. The debt which you could not pay. And he died for our sins. Friends, his death matters. It is a big deal, and everything hangs on it. Everything. And I invite you to trust that Jesus died the death that you and I deserved, justly deserved, that you would trust that he did that for you, and you would say, I cannot save myself. I need that Savior who stood in my place. He bore not just people in general sin, he bore my sin on his shoulders that I might be set free and made his child. The power was displayed so that you might have power today. And that's where Isaiah 53 verse 10 comes into play. It says here in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring so he's dead, but he's going to see. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And most people say this is an echo of what's to come. Somehow he's going to fully die, but yet also he's going to see the fruit of his death. He'll see the victory even though his death bought the defeat. How will that happen? Well, David goes on to say in Psalm 16, 11, that Jesus will rise from the dead. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the verses that we were in before, when he says, For I delivered to you what's of first importance, what I also received. Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was what? Raised according to the Scriptures. Friends, without death, there is no resurrection. The death of Jesus is important. And there are things in life that help teach us this lesson. I have a tree in my front yard. 
It's a skinny tree. And so it can't hold the weight of my children swinging on a branch. So when they grabbed the, one of them, grabbed the branch, the limb broke, and it was just kind of dangling there. Poor little branch. And so I had two options. I can leave that branch just kind of dangling. But if you know anything about what happens is that all the nutrients for that tree will continue to feed this broken branch. It's not going to heal. It'll continue to, because it was really severed, <laughs> hanging on by a thread. It'll continue to feed it until it's cut off. So what I had to do is I went and I cut it completely off so that all the nutrients could go into the fullness of the tree. Death had to happen in order that the fullness of life might be seen. This is what happens every time you eat, and I know you're ready to do that. Whenever you eat, whether it's a fruit on a tree, you break it off, you're killing it. Don't, don't get you know, sad over the fruit, it's okay. You're killing it. Or if you eat a steak, it's a dead animal. Sorry to break the news to some of you. That's how it works. Things must die in order that you might live. This week, a dear friend of ours qualified for a heart transplant. He had a diseased heart, and he was not going to make it unless his heart was replaced. And this week, weeks and weeks ahead of time, a heart that matched what he needed was received. And just miraculously, just as crazy, it's placed in his chest, and he is doing well. But in order for my friend to live, Someone had to die. There are echoes of this lesson all over our lives. And it's not only physical lessons, but spiritual ones. If an addict comes to me, or I battle in any addiction, and we are all addicts in some way, shape, or form, the only way to cut off the addiction is to cut it off. You can't just flirt with it. You can't just let it linger out there. You must cut it off. It must die in order that you might live. You've ever had revenge that was welling up in your heart. You can't hold on to just a little bit of it. It will eat you alive. You must let it go and trust, and this is how Christians handle it. You trust the fact that Jesus died the death that you deserved. He forgave you, therefore you can forgive others. You don't have to hold on to bitterness. It doesn't change. It poisons you. You must die to the revenge in order that you might experience the life of forgiveness. Without death, there is no resurrection, and our Savior specializes in resurrection. He specializes in resurrection. I just want you to know, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He specializes in resurrection, of making old things new. That's what he does. That's what he does. And I come to tell you the good news of a resurrected Savior. The good news is this. People are not your greatest problem. You and I are. I'm my greatest problem. You're your greatest problem. And Jesus died to solve your greatest problem. He solved the sin issue in your heart. The hatred, the sourness. People cannot define you. Jesus is meant to define you. Friends, death has been defeated. The grave could not hold him. Satan could not stop him. Our sin could not crush him. Victory is what we celebrate right here today. We do. We celebrate victory. And you who are downcast, 
and are so aware of your sin, I want you to know there is victory for you today. Sin does not define you anymore. If you trust in Him, there is a new power coursing through your veins that says you are not known as a failure. You are known as a child. He says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not be condemned on that last day, but you will be accepted and loved and welcomed in because Christ is alive. We celebrate a risen Savior. And you don't have to lie or listen to the lies of others because Satan, the father of all lies, has been defeated on the cross. Death is not the victor. And friends, you are not categorized by your sin. You are categorized as a child. And your worth is no longer bound up in your image. It is no longer bound up in your title at work or what you can do for others or your bank account. Your worth rests in a Savior who said, you are valuable enough that I will die for you. And when you suffer, when you suffer, you will never have to doubt whether he loves you or not because he died for you. There's no greater message of love that he could give you. And you will never suffer alone any longer because he rose from the dead and said, I will be with you always. The gospel of the resurrected, crucified Savior is a good news that says, I specialize in resurrection. I specialize in new beginnings. Friends, I have seen marriages that were on the brink of despair. These people were hating each other, and God did an amazing work of changing their hearts, and they began to run towards Christ. And as they were running towards Christ, they began to run towards one another. And I've seen healing happen in fragile, broken marriages. And he can do that because he died and he rose from the dead. I've seen people gripped by years of depression and find freedom in Christ. Years of addiction to substances and find freedom in Christ. A Savior who can bear your burdens. He died, he rose from the dead so that you would know that you are loved. So that you would know your anxiety won't win. And he has the power you need to live today. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if in this moment right now, there were spouses and there were moms and dads who trusted in Christ. They were set free from the burden of having to be perfect and they were willing to apologize for the wrongs they committed against someone in their home. Wouldn't it be great to see the power of the living God break the shackles of defensiveness and set moms and dads Husbands and wives free to say, I'm sorry, should not have treated you that way. And to experience in that humility the freedom that only Christ can give. Some of you are bearing a burden that is too heavy because you are trying to be what you will never be able to be. One without weakness and one with no chinks in their armor. Friends, I hate to break the news to you. The church is filled. It is only filled with people who have chinks in their armor. But it's people who worship a Savior who didn't have one, who lacked nothing. Wouldn't it be great if people would choose to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, let go of their bitterness, 
Wouldn't it be great if in this moment right now people refuse to allow their job and their money be what they live for? And now like swimming in the pool of God's grace, they said, I want everything to be for his name and his fame. And I want to use my life in sacrificial love until I die. This is the invitation of the good news. We have all sinned, fall short of his greatness. In his amazing love, he killed his son so that he would be just, but that you could be forgiven. And he invites you in this moment to turn from your sin, trust in him with all of your heart, to trust in him, and to trust that he can make you new. He specializes in resurrection. Let's pray. Father, would you work in this moment right now to set people free? Years, years of pain, years of shame, years of blame, years of revenge, eating people from the inside out, years of living for things that they, we can get our hands on only to have those things not satisfy us and our hearts long for more. Father, may we grow tired of living for what everybody else lives for. And oh God, would you please set us free to live for you. Father, please, right now, there are some in this room who have never heard this good news that Jesus did die for them and three days later he rose from the dead so that not only power would be displayed in the past, but that they could experience his power in the present and he would get them to the end to experience eternal life. Father, would you change people right now in this moment? Would you fill us as a room, as a people with confession of sin and our inability to save ourselves? Would you please, would you please come and remind us that you're a good Savior? You are rejected that we might be accepted in you. For those who are followers of Jesus, God, I ask that you would show them, supernaturally show them that there is a power that resides in them that parted the Red Sea and that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of your Holy Spirit, God, help them to not resign themselves to sin, to not resign themselves to relational discord, but to pray and to fight with all their mights to be an instrument in your hands of love. Set people free, Father, I pray. We're going to have a brief time of reflection right now. Time for you to just share your heart with God. He wants you simple as you are to just talk to Him. In your own heart, talk to Him. Ask Him to change you. Celebrate His love for you, this good news. And after a brief time of prayer, then we will sing a song together. If there's anything that I can do for you, I'll be up front, be willing to pray for you as I know others will be as well. So let's spend this time in prayer.